It's June 6th, and the monks have always been our friends. Alyssa and I will talk about the lie of the land and discuss a little bit about Pride Month 2017 and one Bill Potts on This Week in Time Travel. And welcome back to This Week in Time Travel. I'm Chip. I'm Alyssa. Hey, everybody. And together, we're detectives. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) It's a light show for you uh, today. Uh, It's just a two-hander with me and Chip here. Yeah, and uh, speaking of light, let's talk about ratings for the Lie of the Land. We, Oof. you know, we that's it. It's the middle of the season, so there's not a whole lot of news other than ratings and occasional other things that happen. But there was this little issue with ITV moving Britain's Got Talent opposite uh, our own Doctor Who uh, to avoid the uh, concert for Manchester, and that meant that Doctor Who kind of got swamped in the overnights uh, Saturday night, uh, 3.01 ratings, which is the lowest in its history, like second to battlefield. Uh, there was, there's going to be time shifting, so the final number is going to be much higher, but ouch, man, ouch. Yeah, it's one of those I feel bad for Doctor Who, but I can't imagine that anyone blames them for this. You know, ITV moved off of Sunday because the Manchester Benefit concert and you you, you just don't want to be up against that. Like not in any way. So they weren't expecting it. And it, you know, is a solid enough episode. I think time shifting will make up for a lot of this. Absolutely. Uh, the other big news of the week was the apparent confirmation from uh, showrunner Patrick Ness that class is dismissed. Unfortunately, it looks like it. Now, he didn't officially say class is never coming back. He did say that they should be filming around now if they were going to be coming back for a season two, because they'd have to work around uh, the next season of Doctor Who as well. Um, And that's not happening. The BBC hasn't officially confirmed yes or no that class is canceled. But Patrick Ness has said he is most definitely not coming back to write any more new episodes. So wherever class goes from here, it will have to be with someone entirely new. But it doesn't look good right now. It really doesn't look good. Ness is been vocal in his frustration that uh, the BBC didn't seem to know what to do with it. BBC America was a strong supporter of the show, even though they held it for airing for a good six months after it aired in the UK. BBC America gave it prime positioning on the network compared to, say, BBC One, which they seem to schedule that with the help of a Ouija board. You know what? Probably. The unfortunate thing about the move is that it probably affected the BBC's decision about whether or not to renew it for season two, because if you're looking at international viewing numbers, the numbers for class are only just wrapping up. Uh, BBC America aired the season finale of class right after The Lie of the Land. So only now will you have a more complete picture of how this is doing in the major international markets. Uh, And I've said this before on this podcast and in many other places, the decision to delay it uh, in various different countries 
probably hampered its ability to build a strong following because you have followers in the UK who are trying to be respectful of people who want to watch it in the US and people in the US who are going to start downloading it illegally and trying to view it wherever that they can because they're getting spoiled for all of the major plot points of class as it's airing in the UK. So it unfortunately seems to have been hit from all sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chip, I'm not finished watching it yet. Um, I'm uh, a few episodes behind. I'm hoping to catch up over the next few weeks. Have you been following along? This is one of those areas where I just feel like an awful fan. But I have seen exactly two-thirds of the first episode of Class. I, I am a... I'm a busy guy. I make time for Doctor Who and not a whole lot of other television. And I haven't been able to get traction on class yet. So and that but that's entirely specific to me. It's nothing about class. And I'm not going to generalize from myself to the entire viewing audience in the U.S. But for me, it's hard to make time for television. My my running gag has been in pop culture is that I don't lo- watch a lot of television, but what I do, I watch really, really well. I watch mm-hmm. Doctor Who really, really well. Class is a spinoff, and it's been not as much of a priority for me. Yeah, I'm also beginning to understand some of the uh, early... I won't say as strong as complaints, maybe flags is a better word, that uh, class is very brutal and it's very emotional and it is a little bit of a traumatic show to watch. Now, I'm not saying that this is a bad idea to show teens. I think that, you know, teens deal with a fair amount of trauma and brutality in their everyday lives. And it's good to have a show that meets them at their level and doesn't treat them like children who aren't capable of handling it. But if you've experienced any of these traumatic situations, then it's probably going to be a lot harder for you to watch it. There's a lot of discussion, particularly something that impacted me about the death of parents um, and some very violent stuff shown related to that. So it's hard to watch it if you've been through any of these circumstances. And yes, it's a science fiction show and it it takes everything to the nth degree. But if there's a nugget of, you know, you have lost a parent, you have experienced a traumatic injury, you have been through depression, you have seen people do terrible things, it's it's very hard to watch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not always been a problem for a Doctor Who spinoff. Look at Torchwood, which Mm -hmm. uh, was certainly popular on BBC America and has a a strong following or had a strong following. But it's always tricky. And you take what I'm assuming is uh, some fairly graphic and brutal stuff in class and you attach it to the Doctor Who brand, it's not an easy, it's not an easy transition to make. Uh, Torchwood basically ignored Doctor Who. Class has the uh, Doctor in the first episode. I'm not sure about what other references might be in there later on. So far, I haven't seen many. They do yeah. seem to be creating a little bit of separation. Yeah, but uh, Ness had talked about a second series potential episode of uh, that would have featured the Weeping Angels uh, fighting among each other. And so, you know, but it's still an uncomfortable mix. Between that and the fact that the BBC seemed to be using class as a sort of a almost a loss leader to try to convince people to check out uh, BBC3 on digital 
since the the regular BBC Three network had gone away. It's not necessarily a good thing to be sort of using the show, using a TV show to sort of try to entice people to subscribe to something or to check in something instead of trying to make it a strong show for its own sake and to put it in front of as many eyeballs as you can manage. So That's the thing. It's so tricky to get stuff on digital platforms and Netflix and Hulu can do a very good job about it, but you have to not just simply try to entice people over to this platform with something that's kind of unknown. You have to give them a good reason to want to invest in it. Yeah. We could see some similar problems when Star Trek Discovery finally launches, you know, and it's being used as sort of a loss leader to convince people to sign up for CBS All Access, you know. Uh, yeah, I wonder if some of class's problems may recur uh, over there. I will get to class probably after the season of Doctor Who is finally over, and I will try to catch up on it, and maybe we can have a very, very belated check-in on it on This Week in Time Travel. But I, I am sorry to see any Doctor Who property. I was getting ready to say not succeed, but... Success is in the eye of the viewer, you know. Are people satisfied with it in the end? Is it a good show? Then it succeeded. Yep, exactly. And there's definitely committed fans of the show. And I'm sorry for them that they're not going to be getting any more of it, it looks like. Yeah. That would be the truth and the whole truth about class and uh, the ratings for The Lie of the Land. Let's check in about the episode itself. How was that segue with the truth and the going into the review? Eh. Damn it. Sorry. <laughs> well, I had to try. Uh, so this was the season mid-season three-parter that we heard so much about. And we were not super in love with the pyramid at the end of the world. And I was thinking that that episode might be somewhat redeemed or not based on how this one went. Um, over to you, Alyssa. What did you think of The Lie of the Land? Uh-huh. I don't really have strong feelings either way about it. It's a perfectly fine episode. Um, I think that the problem with the monk's arc for me is that you can definitely tell that this is a three-parter written by three different people. Every single episode has felt very different, uh, and it's not really come together in the end for me. I think The Lie of the Land was enjoyable and engaging enough while I was watching it. It had some really great moments, but overall, it doesn't really make me feel anything about the monk's arc, you know, like, I don't want to say that it redeemed, it didn't redeem it for me, because I wasn't really in a place where I wanted it to be redeemed. I wasn't super invested in it. Uh, it's, the whole episode was very dystopia. And it's like an entirely different genre from the episodes that came before it. So it was fine. You know, I will mostly, if I ever come back to this episode, fast forward through to all the scenes with Missy uh, and then just skip right along. Um, I did think, uh, though, that the moment at the end where Bill defeats the monks by imagining her mother was 
beautiful and brilliant. And I liked the way that they wrapped everything up by bringing Bill and the doctor back to the university, uh, back to their home base, as it were, uh, and slipped right back into that role of professor and student. I thought that was very sweet. Yeah. I liked this one better than Pyramid. I thought it was more consistent and I just, I I felt like the story moved from point A to point B to point C in a way that I kind that I found believable. Um, pacing was a problem for me, though. Um, I got an emergency phone call in the middle of watching the episode, and I had to pause it. And they're um, breaking into they're breaking into the pyramid in London, uh, and I get ready to press play again, and I realize that holy cow. There's only 10 minutes left in this episode. So much time spent on the build-up to them getting in there, and they're going to wrap this up fairly quickly. And and so it did. And so it completely felt like a very, very pat resolution. Um, I'm with you 100% on how awesome it was to see Bill and her imagined mom being the saviors of the planet. That was... That was fantastic, and I was really happy about that. But the way the way it was executed um, just felt a little rushed. Uh, we were told that the that all Bill had to do was to die to solve the problem, and the doctor, of course, looks for another way. And then the doctor fails to rewrite uh, rewrite history, as it were. So Bill's got to do something. And what does she do? She tries to do the same thing that the doctor did with putting his hands on the monk and the throne and all this other stuff. And that seemed to come out of nowhere. Um, so that was that was sort of uh, where the logic of the episode seemed to break down for me a little bit. Aside from that, for the most part in this episode, this was the bill I have been waiting for all series. Go a little bit more into that. Why was this the Bill that you really wanted to see? Okay, stipulated. I like Bill, and I love Pearl Mackey. I have been, and I think I mentioned this last week, I have been conditioned over the years to expect my Doctor Who companions to be, if not superheroes like the Doctor, to have a whole lot of agency and control. And Bill has been established very consciously throughout this season as every woman when she confronts the doctor she's having a big damn hero moment she is dressing him down for letting her down and it is beautiful and it is powerful and then when the doctor is knocked out she ties him up and in a very very reminiscent of river song fashion you know she's going to sacrifice herself to set the world right and again she's taking control she is doing things that's what i want to see it's it's sort of the rose moment at the at the end of season one where she says you you the doctor taught me you've got to make a stand that's powerful stuff and i loved loved seeing that not to suggest that bill in any of the previous episodes is lesser but she's more than a student in this episode she has agency and power, and I love that. Yeah, I definitely think that 
Bill uh, really shown uh, in this episode. Uh, she was really leading everything. It was more about her and her fight against the monks than it was about the doctor and the doctor's fight against the monks. He's sort of an accessory to her in this, in that they go around and they're trying to figure out the best way to defeat the monks. But in the end, it's going to come down to Bill and her decision uh, and her memories and her life and her love as a way to defeat the monks. But that also brings me back a little bit into the thing that I didn't like about this episode in that it doesn't really tie the monk's arc back together for me very well. Um, you know, we had this big discussion last week about the manipulation of Bill's love and consent in order to allow the monks to be able to take over the world. And there wasn't really any satisfactory answer to that in this episode, um, probably because the writers didn't think that was a problem that needed to be addressed. In Jamie Matheson's defense, although Moffat has, as a showrunner, surely had the opportunity to stitch things together, but, you know, that wasn't a problem that he was necessarily asked to solve. No, absolutely. But when you do have a three-episode arc like this, and you are bringing in these themes of manipulation, both in the virtual reality and in the manipulation of Bill to get her consent, and then the manipulation of everyone's memories uh, and the propaganda to make everyone believe that the monks have always been there, that they're acting in their best interest— to not then wrap up with some sort of address of that manipulation and how harmful that is and how Bill really took the brunt of most of that uh, in the past couple of episodes is to me a little bit of a problem. We focused more in the first two episodes about the doctor and his, you know, distress over being blind and not into the doctor's how- distress. The doctor the do- in distress. Don't don't do it. Don't do it, Chip. I if think you play I play an it. audio of the doctor in distress in the middle of this podcast. I will come down and I will find you. I'll be good. Please continue. <laughs> but you have this conversation about all of the doctor's pain, and you're not focusing at all on. Bill's pain. How does Bill feel about having her consent manipulated? How does Bill feel about having her memories be the ones that are manipulated most of all to sort of bring the earth to heal? Um, And particularly, how does Bill feel about that moment that the doctor kind of gaslights her uh, and goes really further than I think he needs to to establish that Bill isn't under the monk's control up to the point that she shoots him and believes that she kills him. That to me was, I was with Bill there, but I didn't just want to beat the hell out of Nardol. I wanted to beat the hell out of the doctor as well. Yeah, that was, and leaving aside the um, great unanswered question about how the doctor can fake regeneration energy or something like that, answer because it trolls the fans, as well as trolling Bill. I mean, Pretty yeah, he, he kind of trolled Bill there. Um, that was kind. That was kind of clever, uh, and clever at Bill's expense. And I didn't care for that too much. Yeah. The other thing that I also keep coming back to is the monks are supposed to be this omnipotent force, and they 
sort of seem to be defeated kind of easily. Like, yeah, we almost lose Bill, but also there was one monk, or a few monks on guard at the pyramid itself, and they just sort of fell over kind of easily. And that nobody was, else that was came back I in didn't to help? A- that wasn't something that I had a big problem with because I, I think they actually addressed it in the story to my satisfaction, the the, suspi- the suggestion that there were only like 12 monks, period, that their, uh, that their their mental power was enough that it sort of disguised how weak they actually were. Very well could be. It's just you have a race that is powerful enough to cure blindness from a distance with no visible mechanism and... They don't seem to have a very good way of being able to defend themselves in their own pyramid. Mm-hmm. That's, th- that's the thing. It just sort of made me sort of raise an eyebrow during that fight scene of just, okay, this is going down pretty easily. Well, you know, they they did throw some interesting looking lightning and they did take out a couple of the guards and things like that. But um, and, and I did think that those were kind of inventive special effects, uh, slowing down the camera, doing the slow-mo lightning and the uh, the sort of extruded shields kinds of things um and bill's voiceover during that was amazing yeah yeah it really was um and i did like the one guard whose walkman got uh smashed and uh nardole vulcan neck pinching uh him at the end and but before that the doctor's reaction to having the gun pointed at his forehead and saying how are you how are you feeling harry yes I would have liked a little less time on the front half of the episode I w- I would, and a little more time spent on the sort of sneaking into the pyramid and dealing with the, the solution before we finally got to uh, Bill saving the world. I did like that completely extraneous audio dialogue replacement as the doctor walks in and calls the room fake news central. I'm pretty sure that wasn't in the original script. I don't know, maybe, but there definitely to me was a little bit of a hint of, hey, we're talking about propaganda and fake news and fake memories here. Let's put a little current events reference in here. Yep. And I like the, you know, the doctor having some really nice cutting lines, um, even even when he's sort of gaslighting Bill, you know, you know that some of the stuff that he's saying is coming from a very, very true place in his core when he complains about humanity not learning the lessons of fascism and fundamentalism. You know, that's Peter. This is a great performance for Peter Capaldi, top to bottom. Yes, he is very much in his element and seems to just be really enjoying the hell out of himself in these last couple of episodes. Mm-hmm. And I'm still on Team Nardle. I'm 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 enjoying what Matt Lucas is doing with him, and I'm kind of in, and I think that I think that he is kind of fitting into the ensemble. He and Bill Nardle and Bill Matt Lucas and Pearl Mackey, they are developing some nice chemistry. I think. They are. He definitely seems to be earning his place a little bit more. I understand why you're here now. Uh, it's still a little bit of, you know, eyebrow raising of, uh, you know, I'd like to have a little bit more time spent with Bill on screen. Uh, but, you know, I'm I'm not as Nardole averse as I was in the first few episodes. And then there's the vault. 
Yes. Missy, Michelle Gomez is just working it this past few episodes. I loved every moment with her in the vault. I could easily have gone 10, 15, the whole episode, just Missy vault all the time. What I find really delicious about this is that it is plausible either way, whether Missy is just biding her time for an opportunity or is genuinely trying to work out this being good thing. Uh, I don't I personally don't buy it for a second that uh, she is feeling genuine remorse or anything like that. But we could certainly we could certainly be be surprised uh, at the end of the series. I have my own theories about how John Sims going to work into this. Yeah, I don't trust Missy pretty much as far as I can throw her. Um, I did like, though, the sort of inversion of the relationship between the doctor and his companion. You know, Missy is working it through with the doctor. She's not giving him the answer of here's how I defeated the monks and here's how you can defeat the monks. It's let's make you work the paces and figure out how you think you need to fight against the monks uh, and lead you to the correct answer. Um, and also, there was a very interesting line, I thought, where Missy is talking with the doctor about his sense of good and how it is very sort of warped and sentimental. And her comment that if that's the type of good you think I need to be before you'll let me out of here... I'll be here for a very long time. It was a a very interesting sort of commentary that the doctor's version of good isn't necessarily the correct definition of good. Now, it's coming from a notable villain and evil mastermind, so maybe I wouldn't go with Michelle Gomez's version of good either. But the doctor has made the decision in the past to sacrifice one person to be able to save more people or, you know, to sacrifice his own planet and his own people, even if that was later rewritten, whatever. But he did make the decision at one point that it would be better to sacrifice them than lose the entire universe as it existed. So uh, it was an interesting sort of commentary. But the whole thing actually reminds me very much of, um, have you ever read the book Harvest of Time by uh, Alistair Reynolds? I have not. So This is a great book, and you should read it. Um, It's a a book set during uh, the Third Doctor era. So it's three and Delgado, you know, off on crazy adventures through time. Um, And I don't want to spoil and give too much away, but there's a moment where the Master has been harmed in such a way that he seems to recognize the error of his ways and want to be good. And the doctor doesn't believe the master at all. But at the moment where he realizes it's too late, he begins to wonder, was that actually a genuine moment? Did the moment where the master was harmed like this make it possible that he could be reformed? Um, So I'm the entire time we're through those conversations, I'm thinking to myself, this is very, very similar to all the discussions in Harvest of Time about whether or not the master could ever be reformed and be good again. So I'm very curious to see how it plays out, but I don't for a moment think that Missy is genuine about wanting to be a good person. Mm. Two thoughts in response to that. First is I was just getting ready to ask you if you could imagine Roger Delgado or Anthony Ainley or 
John Sim. I mean, I'm, I'm dismissing Eric Roberts on this one out of hand, having Oof. that uh, I can be good. Teach me how to be good moment. You know, I can imagine it in circumstances with some of the masters. Um, and this is where my fanfic brain goes into overdrive. Like I already have harvest of time to tell me what that conversation would look like between Delgado and three. Uh, Anthony Ainley think there would be a moment where he could like pretend to be Nissa's dad again and say that like somehow through that influence, he's going to be good. So, you know, can the fifth doctor teach him how to be good again and he'll be reformed and nope, he will not actually be reformed. Um, John Sim, I could imagine it like if the doctor had successfully taken him into the TARDIS. So there's this whole fan community uh, online that imagines what it would be like uh, if the 10th Doctor had got the John Sim Master into the TARDIS and was, you know, sort of holding him there, uh, similar to like Scream of the Shulka, where the Master and the Doctor are living together in the TARDIS and sort of being space husbands. Um, So (laughs) that's what they're called. Okay, this is not just me. But like, I can sort of imagine that conversation between John Sim uh, and the 10th Doctor of, you know, if you teach me how to be good again, maybe I can earn my freedom from the TARDIS and it's all manipulation. See, here's the thing. Every time I think it through, it all to me comes back to this is a manipulation to get freedom again. Yeah. Uh, last observation. Uh, and again, uh, sort of spinning off of what you just said. Um, Missy's tete-a-tete with the doctor on the nature of good and sentimentality mirrors almost perfectly the doctor's conversations with Bill in Thin Ice. Ooh, yes. I like it. So it's good. It's good to see the doctor sort of brought up short when he doesn't live up to his own stated ideals. And the master is the perfect character to do that. Absolutely. I liked The Lie of the Land. I liked it better than Pyramid at the End of the World. I think Extremis was the best of the three, but that's probably inevitable when you've got three different writers taking three different perspectives on a mid-season three-parter. The first one's going to be the purest one, and then every successive one is going to sort of have an uncomfortable sort of reaction to what came before, because it doesn't all come from the same brain, even if it is being coordinated by the same showrunner. Exactly. I think that this is not the worst of the three parters, but on a rewatch, I will probably skip right through them. Uh, alas. Yep. This week on The Incomparable Network. Our own Rachel Donner joined Jason Snell for the weekly Doctor Who flashcast on The Lie of the Land. There's a new podcast starring Quinn Rose on musical theater called Corner of the Sky. And Tim Goodman talks Netflix's cancellations of The Get Down and <sighs> Sense8 on the TV talk machine. We'll miss you, Sense8. All this and more at theincomparable.com. As we enter Pride Month 2017, Alyssa took some time to reflect on what it means to be proud, and also how Bill Potts gives her hope.
June is Pride Month, and this is a very special Pride Month for me because it's the first one where I'm out as an open queer woman. I've struggled a lot with my identity, and right now what I'm struggling with is how to be proud of that identity because it took so much work to even get to the point where I could be out and open and accepting of my identity in the first place. My identity as a queer woman was largely formed back in high school. And although there's this very popular image of California as being this mecca and super tolerant state for LGBTQ rights, in reality, we have a very complicated history. We were the state that had Harvey Milk, one of the most amazing campaigners for LGBTQ rights. He was also assassinated in his office by a fellow San Francisco City Council member. And the battles that he fought are still being felt, uh, even in my generation. The teacher advisor for my high school's Gay Straight Alliance Club uh, was a teacher who was threatened with losing his job back in those days if he was ever open about his sexuality. And it wasn't even really safe to be open about your identity in my high school. There was a fair amount of harassment if you were open. Uh, The administrators who monitored us during our lunch breaks would frequently come by to break apart the queer women in my friend group from showing any physical affection towards each other. Meanwhile, if you were a heterosexual couple, you could pretty much get away with just about near everything up to actually having sex on school grounds. That wasn't the worst of it. I remember back when we were protesting Proposition 8, which, if you're not familiar, was the proposition uh, that banned gay marriage in California. We were really excited and fired up because this was something tangible we could fight in our community. And we protested every single morning outside my high school, urging people to vote no on Proposition 8. People threw things at us, and they also shouted abuse at us from their cars. One teacher drove by and yelled a really horrible slur at the students who were out protesting. He got some sort of reprimand afterwards, but we don't believe he faced any serious consequences for his actions. And this is entirely besides all the stories we were hearing about queer kids our age being beaten up, being forced back into the closet, being attacked the moment that they were out or even suspected of being queer. My decision to come out as a bisexual woman happened as a result of the Pulse nightclub shooting. I felt afterwards that I wasn't bearing the burden of visibility enough, that I wasn't out there showing that queer people are around us all the time, that we are your neighbors, we are your friends, we are your daughters, your siblings, your nieces, and your cousins. And I couldn't let other people bear that burden for me. So I've been struggling a lot in the past year since I came out with trying to be proud about who I am, because there haven't been a lot of people to show me that vision of what it means to be proud of being a queer woman, of being a bisexual woman, of being a woman on the sexual spectrum. Popular culture has also fallen down a little bit on showing me what it means to be proud to be queer. 
there aren't a lot of queer characters that are there and what queer characters they are usually meet tragic or truly terrifying and horrifying endings. There have been a few, though, and this is one of the reasons that Bill Potts gives me a lot of hope. She's out, she's proud, she is just as awkward as me at getting a girl to date her. She is exciting. She's having adventures. She's out with the doctor, seeing time and space, and doing it as a queer woman. And that alone is something that I think is inspiring. I'm so excited that kids in this generation are going to be seeing characters like Bill on their screens, that they're going to be normal, everyday kind of people, the kind of people that don't represent a far-off future that is a utopia we'll never reach in our lifetimes, or a strange supernatural situation that isn't really relevant to us in our day-to-day. Bill Potts is a girl just like me, who's also having fantastic adventures and also happens to be queer. Now, it's not always been perfect. I think the legacy I carry of the harassment and violence that kept me in the closet and ultimately prompted me to come out and be open about my identity is one of the things that makes me nervous about scenes where her dates with Penny are broken up by the Pope or they're broken up by men armed with guns. There's still a part of me in the back of my brain that's that scared little high school student who's wondering, is this violence going to come for me if I'm open and proud about my identity? But most of all, I look at Bill Potts and I see someone to be proud of, someone who reminds me to be proud of myself, and someone who is going to teach the next generation of queer kids that you shouldn't be ashamed to be who you are, that you can be out and proud and celebrate life and have all these amazing adventures. That gives me hope. And I'll carry her spirit with me when I attend my first Pride March as a proud queer woman. Next week, it's Empress of Mars, written by Mark Gatiss. He had to get that last Ice Warrior story in. Thanks for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're also on Twitter. Find us at drwhothisweek. You can find Chip at numeral two-minute time lord. And you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. We're on Facebook, too. And you can support This Week in Time Travel by subscribing, by sharing, and even by becoming a member of The Incomparable Network. Just go to theincomparable.com slash members. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on This Week in Time Travel. Bye.